Welcome to episode 104, Are We What We Eat? Linking Nutrition to Behavioral Health, featuring David Wiss, Registered Dietitian Nutritionist, interviewed by Elizabeth Irias. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Today we are joined by David Wiss. Uh, David is a founder of Nutrition and Recovery, which is a group practice that specializes in addiction, eating disorders, mental health, gut health, body image, and general wellness in Los Angeles. And he has a master's degree and is a registered dietitian nutritionist with a specialization in mental and behavioral health. David, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this discussion. Um, so please tell us a little bit more about your background and how you came to have the specialization in these two, what we often think of as separate worlds, nutrition and mental health. Yeah, I've always had the vision to bridge the gap between physical and mental health. When I did my, uh, I did an undergraduate in social science, so I have some background in the social science world, and then I switched over and did a master's of science in nutrition. And uh, studying nutrition uh, is very reductionistic. We learn about mechanisms and we learn about vitamins and minerals and calories and there's a lot of math. And I always had this hope that one day I, we collectively scientists could bridge the gap between the medical world and the social science world. And in doing so, I became interested in the link between nutrition and mental health. Uh, my first interest was in the role of nutrition in substance use disorder recovery. Uh, as everyone knows, there's a huge addiction crisis. And early on, I was uh, thinking about topics for my master's thesis. And I thought, what about the connection between uh, not only nutrition, but also eating behavior for people at early recovery from addictions? And uh, I learned pretty quickly that there's a large overlap between addictions and eating disorders. So the co-occurrence is uh, somewhere as low as 3%, and some studies have shown as high as 50% overlap between addictions and eating disorders. And I also learned that there was no standards of practice for nutritionists who work in addiction settings. So there was a requirement for uh, nutrition services in eating disorder treatment. There's requirements for nutrition in long-term care, but there was no established standards of practice for uh, addiction treatment. So I took deep dives into the literature. I did a master's thesis called Nutrition and Substance Abuse, where I was able to see what has been studied, what are the links, and what is uh, known, and where are research gaps. Um, I quickly learned that there was a huge research gap in this area, and there was very few studies that were actually looking at nutritional deficiencies, eating behavior, and outcomes in these types of settings. So my, my master's thesis was at the VA, and we looked at eating behaviors in people that were in recovery. Um, but to, to summarize it all, uh, nutrition for mental health is a broad category. It really thinks about what we eat, obviously, nutrients. And the original studies that I saw linked nutritional deficiencies to certain psychological conditions. So for example, B vitamins or vitamin D or iron or iron related labs have been linked to depression and other uh, mental health conditions. So that became the focus. This would, I'll call it, you know, in the early 2000s, uh, 2010, the, the research was designed to look at what vitamin and mineral deficiencies are linked to what psychological mental health conditions. And then with the addiction research, they were looking at what vitamin and mineral deficiencies would be linked to specific drugs. So for example, does someone who uses heroin have a more uh, likelihood of being deficient in this vitamin versus someone who uses alcohol? Is someone who uses cocaine and stimulants different than someone who uses benzodiazepines, for example? So the kind of early assumption was, if we can figure out what nutritional deficiencies are associated with what conditions, if deficiencies could be corrected, then the conditions could be improved. Now that was the starting point. Now I wanna say that since that time, there's been a huge emergence of other science, which has shown that it goes way beyond 
individual nutrients. And that's kind of what I'm hoping we could talk about today is not just uh, nutritional reductionism, looking at single vitamins, but actually looking at the entire picture of the human. So uh, whole body processes, microbiome, inflammation, the role of adversity, etc. Thank you. Um, this this is something that's very interesting to me, um, and I know for a lot of our listeners, these you know these words you're using like microbiome, they're only things that at least in our field we've only just now started talking about, and certainly more and more research coming out about the importance of gut health and how it plays into mental health. So why don't we start there? Why don't you just start explaining what is a microbiome? How how is that different from person to person? What does um, adversity uh, have to do with it when uh, we look at trauma and childhood development. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. So the term microbiome describes a collective genome of all of the uh, microorganisms that share our human space. Now, the, the reason why this has become so popular in recent years is because we have the technology to test for these things better. So there's something called whole shotgun genome sequencing, also known as 16S RNA, where basically samples can be put into uh, machinery that essentially extracts the genetic material. So for example, one could take a swab from the back of an ear, from uh, a feces sample, and put it into uh, an analysis that would essentially map out the genomes. And that allows us to understand the microbiome. The microbiota is a similar term that just describes the microorganisms rather than the specific genomes. So uh, they're used interchangeably often, but they're different things. So I think for the sake of today, we'll just use the term microbiome because it's the more commonly used uh, term. Now, most people think microbiome and we think the gut, right? However, there's other parts of the body that obviously have microbiome. For example, dentists are studying the oral microbiome, etc. So we're also going to mainly focus on gastrointestinal microbiome. Um, the, the truth is it's very much in its infancy. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be uh, a lot of funding and a lot of new findings in the upcoming years. Uh, we're certainly working on some exciting stuff. Uh, but I think at the most basic level, we're able to see associations between uh, certain health conditions and microbial disruptions or perturbations. Um, I'll, I'll just highlight some of the major findings that are important for mental health. I think the biggest one that really opened people's eyes to the importance of the microbiome was this idea that serotonin is mostly produced in the intestines by way of gut microbiome. So the, the highly cited literature says that around 90% of serotonin has an intestinal source, and about 50% of dopamine uh, is produced in the gut. So previously, we've always known that amino acids, which are parts of protein, are precursors for neurotransmitters. But it wasn't really clear you know, how that conversion process took place. And so what's become more clear is that the bacteria, which is mostly what we're talking about, there's other microorganisms that we're not going to focus on today. The bacteria is responsible for breaking down the food that we eat and converting them into other compounds for use by the body. So most people, when you think about eating food, think about a warm environment in the stomach that's just maybe making some pressure, moving some things around and absorbing things through the intestines. But it turns out that the other living organisms that are not us, but live inside of us, have the role of breaking down these foods, specifically these fibers, and converting them into other things such as neurotransmitters, short-chain fatty acids, and a host of other compounds that are sent through the blood, to the brain, and to the other organ system. Now, this changes everything we know about medicine and about health. And when I teach nutrition to people, and I'm able to go beyond calories and go beyond vitamins and minerals and explain to people that there are two to five pounds of invisible life inside of your gastrointestinal tract that is responsible to break down the foods that you eat and create, uh, we have a new term, by the way, we talk about uh, probiotics, meaning bacteria. There's a term uh, 
prebiotics, which is the food that the bacteria eat, which is most specifically types of fibers. And then the new term that's emerging in nutritional psychiatry is postbiotics, right? Which is all the different byproducts of the microbial degradation. So, so when I'm teaching people about the role of gut bacteria in converting food into things that are needed for the brain, people are able to receive it in a way that might uh, create more motivation for changing eating behavior. So for example, if it was just vitamin and mineral deficiencies, the way I kind of kicked it off today in our discussion, if it was just that, then taking a vitamin or a mineral supplement would fix the problem, wouldn't it? And it turns out that that was the original assumption that was around. And now again, I'm not anti-supplements at all, and I'm not anti-vitamins and minerals, but that was the very incomplete picture that left people very confused. How come when I take a vitamin and mineral, it doesn't necessarily translate rapidly or even you know slowly to noticeable changes in my mood and mental health? However, when we talk about um, uh, fibers in foods and polyphenols, which are antioxidants, all being a part of the equation, we're talking about synergy created by food that doesn't just act on us, but acts on the ecosystem inside of us, which then informs various uh, metabolic, immune, and mental health processes. So hopefully that's a good overview of the gut. The one other piece that's important there, linking the gut and the brain, uh, there's several pathways and I doubt we'll be able to cover them all. The other one, which is uh, quite relevant, is the role of inflammation. So uh, it's ter it turns out that uh, there's a, a difference between acute inflammation, which is, you know, if you were to cut yourself, there would be an obvious inflammatory process that's happening. The immune system is acting up versus uh, like a low-grade systemic or chronic inflammation might even be something that you might not even know is happening, right? It turns out that as gut microbiome is disturbed, and what I mean by disturbed, I should, I should probably define that. Um, the ideal gut microbiome has a wide range of bacterial species. As people uh, have low quality diets or become distressed, which hopefully we can come back to, they lose out on beneficial bacteria. So over time, what happens is there's a loss of uh, species and that in turn can create inflammatory cascades, right? So the inflammation that starts at the gut by way of poor nutrition, by way of stress, by way of lots of other factors, um, can create low-grade systemic inflammation coupled with loss of bacterial species. And those inflammatory processes, we now know, uh, create uh, immune reactions, cytokines, et cetera, and those are traveling all over the, the body. And more specifically, where I'm interested is how inflammatory markers can cross the blood-brain barrier and essentially cause neuroinflammation, which is inflammation in the brain. So this is probably the most exciting link between nutrition and mental health, which is that the food we eat isn't just vitamins and minerals. It isn't just calories. It's profound information that informs the composition of our gut bacteria and uh, can either reduce or promote inflammatory processes, which over time, not, not, not like I said, acute, but chronically over time can affect our brain. And when that message is carried to people that are looking to make nutritional changes, I think a lot of people are able to wake up and say, That's, that registers, that gives me the real why. Because everyone's always known if you eat better, you feel better right? Food and mood. These are all things that we've all said for right years. But when we actually can understand the mechanism and explain them to people, uh, it makes a stronger case of why uh, nutrition interventions should be guided in certain directions versus others. Absolutely. And I can see already the obvious link with mental health conditions and addictive disorders in that typically when people are stressed or depressed or in the throes of a hypomanic episode, um, they're not eating well um, because they don't feel good um, or they, they feel very, very good and they don't feel like they need to eat. <laughs> um, and alternatively, people that have addictive disorders 
are often uh, neglecting primary needs like nutrition, not to mention things like sleep and sometimes hygiene due to the severity of possible addictive disorder. So even right there, you're laying the groundwork to create um, a, a series of problems from a nutritional standpoint that would just build upon themselves to make things worse. That's right. So when we look at someone, for example, with heavy alcohol use and prescription pill abuse, uh, there's obviously some harm caused from the exposure to the substances, as well as harm caused by poor nutritional intake, right? So that combination creates uh, uh, challenges. One of the big breakthroughs in alcohol research in the last five years has been that um, the way we understand the pathogenesis of alcoholic liver disease has changed. Uh, the original assumption prior to all this knowledge about gut health was that uh, alcohol, which is ethanol, converts to acetaldehyde. And these are, you know, toxic substances. And uh, those in combination uh, accumulate and cause damage to the liver, which would lead to, an, over long periods of time, liver disease. It turns out that that uh, assumption or theory is a totally incomplete picture. The real problems associated with uh, alcohol and other substances is the damage that it does to the gut. So alcohol causes dysbiosis. Dysbiosis is the term we use when uh, there's a loss of beneficial bacteria and a, and a growth of uh, parasitic or pathogenic bacteria. And the uh, dysbiosis leads to inflammation the inflammation leads to intestinal permeability. Intestinal permeability is the kind of fancy medical term for what people know as leaky gut. And leaky gut means that there's some small uh, space in the tight junctions of the intestinal barrier where small particles can leak through. And uh, when I say particles, we're not talking about food particles. We're talking about particles from um, uh, bacterial cell wall or LPS, a lipopolysaccharide. These things can enter in the bloodstream and over time that gets passed through to the liver. And these little particles from the intestinal permeability over time are taxing the liver where the immune system is acting up. And the alcoholic liver disease is not caused by the ethanol directly. It's caused by the indirect effects of ethanol on the gut and the gut leakiness is where the liver damage occurs over time. So when we deal with people that have substance-related issues, and I use the alcohol example because it has the most pronounced effect on the gut, uh, what we're looking to do is truly aim to heal uh, intestinal function, right? Because, for example, if someone has dysbiosis and intestinal permeability, maybe taking vitamin supplements might not be absorbed all that well, right? Another uh, hot topic is the opioid crises, right? And if, uh, anyone's familiar with um, uh, the way opioids work, there's often constipation. Sometimes people go 10 days, two weeks even between bowel movements. Um, so, you know, researchers are starting to look at, you know, what might happen in the gastrointestinal environment when the uh, 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 digestive process is slowed down. In other words, what opportunities do pathogenic bacteria have to grow and to proliferate? So it really caught my attention. Uh, a few years back, there was an animal study that showed in um, mice uh, given morphine, they had one particular strain of bacteria that was increased by a hundredfold compared to controls. Now, as a nutritionist that works with people with opioid disorder, these things start to get my attention because, you know, it's like, what if the drug itself is, you know, leading to an increase in the abundance of a certain strain? Uh, it's hard to make those causal inferences at this point. But, you know, for example, there's a known association between opioid uh, withdrawal and recovery and sugar craving, right? So it starts to lend these really interesting questions. What if, what if changes in gut bacteria from a specific substance was driving other cravings for other things? Obviously, we know that the major overlap there is the dopamine system, right? Someone is no longer having their major source of neurochemical reward. They're going to find 
other things to replace it. We call it cross addiction. But why is it that there's specific known associations between opioids and sweets that's stronger than some of the other substances, right? And those are the kind of uh, research questions that haven't been answered that, you know, hopefully I'll be able to make some contributions to. Thank you for covering more of that and and breaking down what these different things mean, you know, what a dis, what dysbiosis means um, and what you're saying about morphine, I think is so interesting. And I'm sure we could have a whole nother talk then about the impact of things like antibiotics on gut microbiome and how that factors into all of this equation. And then looking at the link, um, if we weren't even thinking of it as, as mutually causal, but looking at how much a condition like um, irritable bowel syndrome or um, celiac disease or anything else would almost invariably affect mood because it would affect how you feel as you're walking around the world. So it can't just only affect the body, it invariably is going to affect the brain um, and and mood. So tell us more about the substance use piece. Um, I think what you're saying about um, morphine and opiates is fascinating. Tell us more how you see, so when you're working with somebody in your office that has a substance use disorder, where you start nutritionally so that our listeners as mental health professionals, knowing that most of us are not nutritionists and so we need to refer to someone like you, but what do we need to be paying attention to? Because I know I've worked with some people that are in recovery. And when you ask about their diet, it's like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. and then they're like, well, if you count pizza and Coca-Cola, you know, and then it kind of right. goes down from there. So right. tell us about your experience with that. Yeah, thank you. The most predictable patterns for people that have, you know, severe uh, or even moderate substance use disorders is across into caffeine, nicotine, and sugar-sweetened foods. Um, There's also a predictable pattern of not eating breakfast, which I wouldn't say is substance use disorder specific, but is a kind of known uh, kind of epidemic, I'll call it, in uh, our current climate. Um, Part of the reason, as I stated, is, you know, caffeine, nicotine, sugar are obvious cross-addictions that create a predictable uh, neurochemical response that is basically required by the brain for some people, especially with there's underlying uh, unresolved uh, trauma, stress, and adversity, right? The brain's going to need to find something. But I've also noticed that people going long periods of time actually also increases the neurochemical response to food. So uh, a intervention that I would commonly like to do with someone is to get them eating more regularly and consistency throughout the day. Let's call it five small meals, right? I use the mantra, consistency with food leads to consistency with life, right? If you were to kind of let someone um, make the choice based on what quote unquote feels good, the predictable pattern, and obviously I'm speaking broadly right now about you know the overall people in recovery, which is extremely heterogeneous, would eat most of their food in the second half of the day. Um, And that would be predictably because by the time you get really, really hungry, food tastes way, way better. So there's a larger dopamine response. In other words, hunger is the best sauce, right? So people will uh, typically uh, wait until they're very hungry to get a larger uh, reward from the food. And then uh, late night eating also might help with sleep. Um, uh, there's a lot of medications, uh, that are out there that also increase appetite specifically in the evening. Um, I do want to make a quick side note and I'll come back to your question before I forget. There's a lot of really great research coming out of Ireland where they're actually looking at how medications affect gut bacteria. And that's a really hot topic because people have known for a long time uh, certain antidepressants, SSRIs are associated with weight gain. And the question has always been unanswered. Why? Right? Like, is it the people assumed based on the calorie hypothesis that it obviously someone might be eating more, or there was the kind of metabolic hypothesis, which suggests that it actually changes, you know, metabolic hormones. But now there's this kind of emerging question, what if it was changes in gut bacteria? that actually impacted weight status. 
and that's a really hot topic. The, uh, the data shows decreased bacterial diversity as well as increased permeability at certain uh, parts. Um, one study showed the ileum, which is part of the digestive tract. So that's uh, a hot topic. If I'm dealing with someone in recovery, uh, I'm going to want to uh, obviously know about their medications and emerging information about how that can affect gut to make the stronger case to focus on gut-based nutrition interventions. Uh, I'm certainly going to want to get someone on a kind of patterned way of eating, not overly patterned. Um, like I said, there's a lot of overlap between addictions and eating disorders. So the biggest challenge is being sensitive to uh, someone's level of cognitive rigidity um, because you, the last thing you want to do when you're teaching someone how to eat healthfully is to go too far and turn them into a new obsession, right? So it's a real challenging, it's almost like an art of balancing, getting someone to, I mean, in, a, in, a, in the simplest form to stop eating junk food, right? And then in a more practical form, to not turn that into uh, orthorexia nervosa, which is an extreme obsession with the quality of food. So everyone's different. So people need different messaging, which is why running a group in a uh, addiction treatment center is challenging because some people are more on the restrictive, uh, rigid, uh, trying to go on to a keto diet or do fasting or doing extre dietary extremes, I call them. And other people, and so they would, uh, they're more sensitive to nutrition messaging, right? They might take something uh, and run too far with it. Whereas the next person might need a more practical message of like, no, higher quality diets, including more fiber, more omega-3, which uh, often comes in a fish oil supplement. If not from fish, you can get it from chia seeds, flax seeds, and walnuts. Getting more fruits and vegetables, like uh, eating healthfully is going to improve your mental health. That is a very clear and important message. However, when we talk about mental health, we also have to think about uh, the preoccupation that some people have. One of my intake questions when I meet with people is what percentage of the day do you spend thinking about food and what percentage of the day do you spend thinking about body, right? So uh, even if someone doesn't have any nutritional deficiencies or you know, mental health diagnoses, if someone spends 70% of the day thinking about their body and they spend 50% of the day thinking about food, that could uh, that's a mental health issue, right? And so those are really important considerations which make the work that I do specifically challenging because, you know, with uh, uh, addiction recovery, we want to teach people uh, how to eat better and sometimes with disordered eating, the challenge is not how to eat better, but how to think differently about foods, right? So uh, the, those goals are not at odds, but they do require expertise in both areas in order to be successful and most importantly, to do no harm. I think the, I'm writing down the question that you just asked uh, on intake of what percentage of time do you think about food or do you think about your body? I can think um, even for myself about past clients, just this preoccupation um, and, and also I know for some clients, what an unbelievable source of guilt, you know, that it, it's like, well, I'm not eating. And so then I eat, but I know it's not healthy. And then it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy that they keep feeling sicker, but it, it, the cycle just persists. Um, so we could go lots of different directions from here, but I would love to hear more about the research through your eyes relating to, um, in utero exposure and trauma. I mean, I, I having two children myself, I remember seeing some of the studies just out of my own curiosity, looking at maternal mental health and impact on children and seeing studies about, um, you know, the, the amount of stress that mom was under and subsequent low birth weight and things like that. So I, I could see how we are then setting, um, setting a baseline before birth relating to basically what's going to be out in the world. Will there be not enough food or nutrition to serve me? How stressful is the environment? And so then I, I would assume given epigenetics, our body is adjusting to that before we're even out in the world. So tell us how you see all of these pieces kind of fitting together and what mental health professionals should understand about that component that I'm, I'm going to guess you're going to start with. It's not as simple as, hey, don't eat as many burgers, you know, or, or eat more fruit or vegetables because it's much more complicated. 
complex than that. It's always complex. And to kind of uh, finish an earlier thought I had about bridging the gap between social and biological sciences and psychological sciences, right? Um, th this kind of work that you know we do uh, uh, in line with the question you ask, I, I would call fitting under the biopsychosocial model of health, right? Which is really an effort. Um, it, it kind of was introduced by uh, Dr. Engel in 1977, and it was an effort to look at uh, all the microscopic factors, atomic factors, now bacterial factors, all the way to the cellular organ, individual, family, community, environmental to the planetary level, and being able to look at how all these different factors interact to inform health, and really being able to look at individual differences between people. Um, uh, the other uh, scholar that I want to reference is Dr. Nancy Krieger, who's now at Harvard. Uh, she's a social epidemiologist. She used the term embodiment uh, or many years ago to describe the little the literal incorporation of one's uh, you know environmental uh, circumstances into our everyday lives, right? So most people are familiar with the body keeps the score, which is a very popular book of how trauma and um, early life exposure gets underneath the skin and becomes biologically embedded. Uh, the reality is doing that kind of research uh, on humans is challenging because you can't obviously do any kind of trials. You're not gonna ever assign people to an early life exposure adversity group, right? So uh, it is difficult to be able to ascertain, for example, you mentioned intergenerational links of trauma, right? But it's happening. Um, I will say that uh, I was involved in a, a major review article in, in the Appetite Journal, which uh, looked at preclinical data, which is animal data, linking what a mother eats during pregnancy, and uh, obviously these were rats and mice, to the neurodevelopment of the offspring. So I think we reviewed close to 200 papers, and uh, it, it was very clear that um, ex extreme diets, so either really high in sugar or high in fat, imbalanced, right? Uh, Western diets, we call them chips, Oreos, ice cream, that kind of thing, actually program the offspring for more likelihood for addiction-like behaviors. And that would include uh, uh, drugs, amphetamine, as well as food. So the major uh, premise of the article was focused on food addiction and addiction transfer through maternal influence. So it has been shown uh, pretty clearly in animal models that uh, extreme Western diets, particularly in the third trimester, can make their offspring more susceptible to addiction processes. In other words, the overactivation of the, you know, dop the mesolimbic dopamine system uh, is passed along to the offspring. So if you put it into social context and think about, um, you know, the uh, quote unquote, junk food era that people refer to started in 1980, where people ate more commercialized food, more packaged food, did less cooking at home, and ate more, uh, I like to call it corporate food. It's a good way. It's a kind of, people get that. It's food that's designed for maximum profitability, right? Which means that there's typically some added sugar, salts, fats. There's typically some things that have been removed, fibers often removed, and there's other ingredients that make it all come together that are actually potentially harmful for gut bacteria, is that our exposure to this kind of westernized way of eating, uh, particularly for mothers during pregnancy, can be setting up offspring for higher likelihood of addictive processes. Now, that hasn't been proven in humans, so I do want to state that, but it's a theory that's starting to make sense, especially to me. Then you throw in a little bit of uh, trauma, and then you throw in uh, the smartphone and the internet, right? And we've got the uh, addiction crisis, right? Obviously, the opioid crisis is linked to the environmental accessibility of the uh, drugs. But, you know, the major questions that we have to look at in um, the opioid crisis, for example, is 
Where does all the pain come from in the first place? Why are people more susceptible to getting addicted than, you know, maybe they used to? And as a, you know, nutrition researcher, I'm interested in how has the highly palatable food that we've been eating been programming our reward systems to make us potentially more susceptible to other addictive processes? And that's a really interesting question. Uh, when we look at addiction as an outcome, uh, uh, one of the most well-established uh, risk factors is the psychosocial vulnerability from, from, from trauma. Um, if you were to think about like a causal pie, like what would set someone up for uh, drug addiction? If there was a genetic component mixed with um, psychosocial components, stress, trauma, adversity, and then there's like exposure, chronic exposure to the substance, you're almost, you know, um, you're very likely to end up with the substance use disorder phenotype. Now, some people don't use drugs because they are illegal and stigmatized. And I'm interested in the link between those vulnerability factors and uh, food addiction and eating behavior, right? Uh, which, you know, also can lead to obesity or to eating disorders, um, which, you know, really takes a look at a life course approach to early adversity, how that becomes biologically embedded, and how that can translate to behavioral mental health outcomes, um, whether it be uh, drug addiction, food addiction, or eating disorders. Those three are highly intertwined and overlap. They can exist independently but they can all coexist at the same time and at different parts throughout the life course. And they can affect people's um, weight in ways that might affect quality of life and other health parameters. Um, and it's starting to get really interesting because nutrition is no longer just a vitamin or a uh, calorie or a food label. Nutrition is um, you know, a potential medium for uh, 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 behavioral health. So uh, overeating, undereating. One of the real interesting areas of inquiry that I have, and I ask sometimes this in my intake with people, is I want to know their highest weight and their lowest weight. Sometimes the amount of fluctuation that someone's had throughout their life can inform certain things about their not only metabolic health, but also mental and behavioral health. If someone has uh, been in a pretty tight range, right? They've been like, you know, within 15 pounds on either side for most of their adult life, it tells a different story than someone who's been up and down 75 pounds on both ends a few times, right? Those are totally different stories. So as a behavioral health nutritionist, I'm interested in looking at things like that and things like, um, you know, circadian rhythms. What time do you wake up and go to bed every night? If someone has erratic sleep patterns, that tells a very different story than someone who goes to bed and wakes up at the same time every day. If someone has a bowel movement at the same time every day, it tells a very different story than someone who sometimes is constipated, uh, uh, has diarrhea, has erratic uh, you know, bowel patterns as well. So I like to think about nutrition as an important medium by which you can set up homeostasis and consistency. Because in any form of recovery, whether it be um, addiction, eating disorder, trauma, typically one of the goals is to create that position of neutrality, right? Where you're less susceptible to extremes on, on either end. Uh, but to come back to your original question, the biological embedding of adversity, super hot topic. There's a lot of different pathways by which our early life adversity can affect um, mental health over the life course. Uh, we've talked about the reward system already a little bit. We've talked about inflammation. That's one known pathway. Uh, one common way that inflammation is operationalized in research is a term called allostatic load. Um, basically, you take an index of several different inflammatory markers, and you can uh, measure it to make stronger associations um, uh, in, in the data. Another pathway is the HPA axis, which is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which is the responsible for the human stress response. The output is glucocorticoids, specifically cortisol, which is the known stress hormone. So people that are exposed to 
uh, adversity early on in life can have uh, epigenetic changes where their human stress response is different uh, compared to, let's just say, controls. Um, that's a really hot topic in epigenetics is the glucocorticoid receptor, how that can be altered through adversity. Um, it's also important to note that there are critical and sensitive periods where the exposure to the adversity matters. Um, in other words, you know, how does sexual or physical abuse between ages three and five differ from between 10 and 12, right? Those are things that research are starting to look at. Um, how does different types of adversity affect people differently? In other words, um, does you know, household dysfunction, parents getting into uh, uh, fights in a divorce differ from you know, neighborhood bullying or other forms of uh, adversity, for example, abuse, right? Physical, et cetera. Uh, that's a really hot topic. Um, uh, it's important when you think about adversity affecting behavioral health over the lifespan to think about, uh, obviously, vulnerability factors. Why is it that two people can be exposed to the same thing and have completely different outcomes, right? Someone's at heightened risk for um, psychiatric disorder and the other person has displayed resilience, right? Why is it that someone can bounce back from an adversity and have a stronger phenotype? compared to the person who might uh, have a trauma exposure that, and I know this is gonna sound dramatic, is not easily redeemable by subsequent experience, right? And these are the types of cases that we often see. Uh, so genetics plays a role in both, in my opinion, and based on some of the research I've seen uh, in um, the vulnerability factors. Uh, and then social science is probably more involved in the resilience factors, right? Someone's access to resources, their ability to go to treatment, et cetera. Those things seem uh, to matter. Other pathways between the biological embedding of adversity and mental behavioral health um, uh, include the microbiome. So that's a kind of new area. There aren't a lot of studies, but there's definitely about a dozen. I know that there's some research that shows that stress has a similar effect on the microbiome as, for example, alcohol does, um, which, right, can, it's hard for people to wrap their mind around this. How does stress change the bacteria that live inside of you, right? And I think there's a lot more uh, research there coming, and I'm, 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 I'm following along closely. Um, there's also research on telomeres, which is a biological indicator of aging. Uh, I'm not quite an expert on telomeres yet, but I know that it's a area of investigation for uh, how early life exposures can affect health. Um, the other hot area is the vagus nerve, which is uh, the largest nerve in the autonomic nervous system that connects the back of the brainstem to the various organs and has bi-directional communication. So it's a primary communication network between the gut and the brain. Um, which uh, is uh, impacted by trauma. Um, fascinating research happening there. Um, okay, I'm, I'm bringing all these pieces together as you're talking about it and um, the, what you're saying about telomeres and DNA and um, I mean, what you just said about stress and the microbiome and alcohol use is kind of mind blowing. And to quickly comment um, what you had suggested earlier in this idea that um, the mother's consumption of sugar which which we know has a you know biological impact on the mom in that moment but how it could be affecting a baby and where my brain went also was well what about breastfeeding too like what happens in a mother's diet or if a mother has um excessive stress while they're breastfeeding as well how is that affecting the baby knowing that there are all these things about breast milk that we don't understand at all <laughs> um that are so intricate i'm i'm so glad we're having this conversation my mind is just kind of sitting here being blown over and over and over again by all of the things that you're sharing um so and i cut you off please keep keep going where you were but i, I just wanted to comment on on some of these things that you were suggesting and this idea that again we come back to this point that things are way more complicated than we've given them credit for way more complicated and you know science is only able to capture what it's able to capture and it's an iterative and you know moving target often uh your 
point about breast milk and uh, was well received. And in our animal data, we did look at uh, that as being uh, an important predictor of the outcomes as well. But what I also want to add to the um, pregnancy thing is that overconsumption is problematic, but underconsumption and restriction is equally problematic. If some might argue more, right? So it goes back to my original point. If you're going to tell people, you know, too much sugar during pregnancy can make your uh, offspring more susceptible to other to uh, reward-seeking behavior, right? That might lead someone to, you know, eat none and go really restricty and be orthorexic during their pregnancy and make sure they don't gain as much weight, and that could be problematic as well, right? So it's a perfect example of the balance between trying to teach food addiction and drug addiction science, but also put it in the social context of like, yeah, we live in this society where certain things aren't easily um, accessible for people. Uh, dietary restraint can be problematic. There's a lot of stigma around weight and nutrition. And these are all things that kind of bridge the gap between the biological science and the important psychological parts of it uh, as well. The last pathway that I think is worth mentioning, I think this is pretty hot stuff, at least in my world, um, is how trauma can uh, alter some of the functional and connective parts of the brain, uh, specifically um, PTSD leading to reduced hippocampal volumes. So there was a recent systematic uh, review and meta-analysis that did show that um, trauma reduces hippocampal volume, which uh, hippocampus, as we know, is involved in memory as well as other processes. Uh, this is a real example of how adversity is biologically embedded and really can be challenging to quote unquote reverse, right? Um, certain epigenetic things can be reversible. How reversible is altered reward pathways? We don't know. But one other area of inquiry there is that amygdala volumes have also been shown to increase. So that has less strong evidence than reduced hippocampal volumes. But you know, those of us that work with you know behavioral health, uh, you know, know the importance of the amygdala. Right, we're dealing with uh, emotions. That's where things like anxiety and depression and even cravings are often um, generated through. So. If someone is, let's just do a hypothetical case study. Someone is, um, ex, you know, comes from a generational legacy of trauma. The mother um, learned that, you know, you can eat whatever you want during pregnancy, expose themselves to a lot of highly palatable food. The offspring grows up in an adverse uh, environment, uh, is exposed to a lot of um, sweetened, salted and uh, processed foods. And then they get exposed to their own forms of adversity, have susceptibility to the biological embedding of adversity. And then by the time they are in their uh, early teens, they're already full-blown addicted to their smartphone, to the internet. You're basically setting up a challenging road in terms of uh, you know, life outcomes. So I'm of the belief system that in order to address the addiction crises and the um, uh, obesity epidemic, to be able to address uh, eating disorders, we need to look at, uh, obviously most people would agree with this, um, trauma-informed treatment, better screening, and not just screening, but actually getting people the help they need. In California, there's uh, approved protocols for ACE screening. ACEs are adverse childhood experiences. There's a major study that came out of San Diego Kaiser that uh, showed that uh, uh, adverse childhood experiences are significant predictors of uh, injection drug use. Uh, obesity was significant as well. So 22 years later, after hundreds of studies have been done, they finally approved screening for ACEs in um primary care. Uh, the real question is, once someone shows up and has five aces, right? What do we do with them, right? That's an important question. And um, I also believe as a nutritionist and as a uh, public health academic, um, 
that's what my current uh, PhD journey is in, public health. Um, I, I think we need to look at the food environment as well. I think that giving food corporations the green light to do whatever they want is eventually going to come to light as being completely uh, unacceptable. And I, I do think that we're going to need to you know, target the food companies the same way we had to target the tobacco companies because their their pockets are deep. They're able to fund research, which shows that all their foodstuffs are safe, and it's going to be a long battle ahead. But you know, they've been able to control the public discourse around nutrition. They always want to circle people back to the message of a calorie is a calorie. They want people to focus on nutrients like vitamins right? They can say this is low calorie and it has vitamin, but it's like an artificially sweetened beverage with artificial colors in it, right? So from that old lens, that would come across as, oh, it's a positive uh, health enhancing thing. But from the new lens, you would say, no, actually artificial sweeteners induce glucose intolerance, uh, reduce bacterial diversity, and uh, uh, supplemental vitamins are not absorbed as well as they are in the uh, context of fibers and antioxidants in food. So that might not be a good choice at all. From a calorie standpoint, it, someone might make the argument that it is. From a gut health and mental health standpoint, you could say that's actually not optimal at all. So I do think that in order to reduce uh, some of the crises we're in, we are going to have to look at um, uh, food. I really do. What we, what we, how we educate people during pregnancy, how we message nutrition in early life, and the types of services that people are able to access uh, later on. Um, you know, it's a shame that you know my services are not covered by insurance. You know, and people can get reimbursed through their insurance company, but I like it's such a nightmare that right to to be to have to have trauma and addiction and be binging every night and not have insurance cover nutrition services, right? Is, you know, it's disappointing. It, it points to the reality of our kind of system as well. Um, but yeah, I, I, I see change happening. And I do think that in order to, you know, manifest all that, um, the most important thing is to change the way we think about food. And obviously, if we're talking about policy, to do to to do some really good research that shows that nutrition affects uh, mental health over the life course in the short term as well as in the long term, and the good news is that there are movements happening. Right, I'm not doing this alone. There's the International Society of Nutrition Psychiatry Research. They just had their third annual conference in London. I was able to present there about substance use disorder. And there's a lot there's a lot of global efforts to link nutrition to mental and behavioral health. But I will say that a lot of it's not here in the US. A lot of it's in the UK and Australia and these other places. So I would love to see more focus on that here in the US, particularly as we think about early life adversity and addictive disorders. So one of the things that we struggle with as behavioral and mental health providers is like we have this very clear lane. You know, we're not dietitians, it's not a specialization. And I think there's only so much that we can do, you know, in, in providing um, information and saying, oh, goodness, it would be much better and your body would get better uh, nutrients and, and your microbiome would be improved potentially if you had more regular um, eating habits. You know, I, I've had that conversation, you know, the, the breakfast skippers and the people that eat one meal a day. And, and I've certainly had those conversations. Um, at what point do we really need to, to simply tip our hats to the folks like you that know so much more about all of this than we do? Um, where do we draw that line? And what other resources for the people that don't have the funds to be able to see um, a dietitian? What do we connect them with, with for our, our patients and clients that are in the room so that they can start to learn about this stuff? Because I mean, so many things that you've presented today, I had no idea about. I'm sure our listeners didn't too. And if if I don't know about them, if other people don't know about them, then we're not conveying them to clients and patients. And so there's this, this gap. Hmm. I actually been getting that question a lot lately. I've, I've, I've presented quite a few times to mental health professionals. And since I've been working on my uh, doctorate, 
and you know being up to date on current research, um, doing some research of my own and disseminating these findings, uh, that's the question. How do we bridge the gap between nutrition and mental health? How do psychologists, marriage and family therapists, social workers uh, help people? How do we you know stay in our lane when to refer out? And uh, that that's the question. It really is. I mean, certain things that I think uh, mental health professionals can do is, um, and you know, this might even be a little controversial, is just help people think about like when to eat and just being in a rhythm with food. As because you know the the lane is like when you start telling people what to eat. That's a little bit. That's a little bit on the edge. Uh, but when to eat can make sense, right? Uh, there's a, you know a large movement in the intuitive eating world, which I am I'm a supporter of. Uh, that would say you know just eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full. And I think that works great for some people, especially if they're part of diet culture, right? To get them off of this rigid diet train. But for other people who have inflammation and you know uh, metabolic issues and altered reward sensitivities, that's really challenging for them. So they often need a little bit of structure in the beginning before you can get to that intuitive eating place. So uh, when to eat can be important. Um, and and then, you know, like I said before, thought life around food and body, those things are important. Being able to assess someone's level of cognitive rigidity and dietary restraint as part of the kind of screening for eating disorder process, I think can be really, really helpful. And then, um, you know, obviously when there's uh, eating problems that cause, you know, impairment and distress, right? Those are the times when hopefully someone like me could be helpful. So someone like you as in a registered dietitian, I know for me, it was only recently that I sat down and actually looked at what is a nutritionist versus what is a dietitian. And certainly just to reiterate for our listeners who you're wanting to refer to as someone who's a registered dietitian. So someone who has um, specific knowledge in this that has been um, monitored and evaluated and tested that this individual is is educated in this and has the um, the appropriate education and background to be sharing this information. Is that right, David? That is right. But I will say that most of the stuff I talked about today is way outside of that lane. So <laughs> uh, uh, dietitians are not necessarily trained in stress, trauma, and adversity and mental health. Uh, th- that is something that I've taken uh, interest in professionally as well as academically. So, um, you know, it's always smart when I think most mental health professionals know before you refer to someone, you have a phone chat, get a coffee, kind of figure out if this person is uh, on the level and able to communicate and both people kind of know their, their lanes per se. Um, and so, you know, when I, I work with therapists all the time and, you know, we leave a quick little update afterwards and we kind of both know what we're doing. Um, I might stay away from certain things because I know they're working on it and then vice versa. And that seems to work really well. If someone can get a good team with a mental health professional who can focus on, you know, the emotional stuff, and then someone who can, um, a dietitian specifically, who can focus on some of the biological as well as some of the, you know, psychological stuff related to food. Um, it's a really great team approach. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so you mentioned a society that I'm, I'm guessing a lot of our listeners are going to want to look into the conference that you said in London. Can you restate that? And then also, how can people get in touch with you um, and any other resources that you recommend to our listeners? Yes, the ISNPR is the International Society of Nutritional Psychiatry Research. It's a relatively newly formed organization, so still in its infancy. And I was honored to present there with some of my esteemed colleagues from the NIH in October in London about substance use disorder and attend a bunch of the talks. And I got to meet some of the researchers that I've been citing over the years. So I I don't know if it's every year or every other year at this point, but it's definitely something worth following. Um, My website is nutritionin, that's I-N, recovery.com. So uh, at nutritionandrecovery.com, I give updates around all the publications that I um, put out, whether it be peer-reviewed journal articles, webinars. I sometimes make little videos. I have a newsletter that uh, 
you can opt into. It pops in around 20 seconds and I send out updates of all the stuff we're working on. And the, the major focus is nutrition for mental health, really being able to think about these topics in a new way. And hopefully you were able to uh, stimulate some new thought today. Thank you, David. Um, you shared so many things that are absolutely fascinating. We could go down so many different rabbit holes in these different topics. Thank you for sharing some of this knowledge and for the passion that you're bringing to it to be one of these people that's that's driving this uh, information, this industry forward. It just sounds critical to where we're headed. Um, so thank you. We appreciate having you today. Thank you so much for the experience. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.